Hello everybody, and welcome to the Hurdy Gurdy Cafe, an hour of interviews, music, and camaraderie. I'm Ryan, and I'll be your host along this crazy adventure through the land of the wheel fiddle. So strap in, and let's see what's cranking in the Hurdy Gurdy community today. Welcome back everyone to the Hurdy Gurdy Cafe podcast. I'm here once again with Sergio Gonzalez. Hello, people. And we have a very special guest, Steve Tyler, today. Hello. Steve's in there, yep. Yeah. Um, and we're going to start out today's uh, podcast listening to one of the tracks off of Steve's album, uh, The Enduring and the Ephemeral. And this is called The Second Law, which I believe is the first track on the album. Is that true, Steve? That's right. Okay. Well, let's have a go and we'll come back and we'll start chatting with Steve.
right, welcome back. That was the second law from Steve's album, The Enduring the Ephemeral. And we're going to begin uh, meeting Steve Tyler today, wonderful hurdy-gurdy player, excellent uh, hurdy-gurdy teacher, uh, recording artist, musician, and probably a whole bunch of other things. Uh, Steve, the first question is, where do you come from? In what sense? Do you know <laughs> well, when, when I first when I first became aware of you, um, I saw uh, a few videos, and you kind of dress like you're out of one of my fantasy novels, and mm-hmm. and then you showed up teaching uh, one of the um, one of the lessons I had with you, and you looked exactly the same. But you know, I thought to myself, but that just seems right. It seems like it comes from a whole other dimension. So anyway, musically. Uh, in regards to what you're interested in, why are you the way you are? Huh, what was pertinent here? That could be a wider question. What what was pertinent is is mu- music. I'm hearing music there. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. It's when this I, is. <laughs> it's when sorry. Go ahead. This, this is my mom's phone. She forgot it here. Oh. <laughs> So yeah, I just mute him, uh, mute it. <laughs> Sorry. I, I was going to say that's what happened when we say Steve's name. Music just plays. <laughs> so anyway, what is your history? How did you get involved with the Hurdy Gurdy? You know, what, what what inspires you musically? I mean, generally musically, I should say I haven't done any actual proper academic music. So in one sense, I don't know anything about music or how it's supposed to go. Uh, when I got my Hurdy Gurdy, my first Hurdy Gurdy was the early music shop kit back in 1993 oh. so going back a bit before that to um my f- my first experiences of hurdy-gurdy i suppose leading up to that would be the ni- late 1980s just randomly hearing things so in those days i didn't know anything about folk music or early music and i had a few instruments but really i would just make up my own patterns it wasn't then about tunes or following any style and genre uh, so when i saw occasional hurdy-gurdy first of all i was curious but once you see them two or three times i begin to understand it's the notion of the rhythmic drone once you start to understand it i think it's captivating for some it's also the relationship of that with other parts and other things going on around which might cause what you you could call dissonances sometimes just it's changing things there's something hypnotic about the drone Mm-hmm. I think I have a vague half dream stroke memory that back in 1985 I may have seen I think I saw Hurdy-Gurdy and Bagpipes at the WOMAD Festival which was in Mercy Island in Essex I wasn't there for that sort of music that's not quite what I saw just a bit of wandering around now could that, could that have been Nigel and Paul Nigel Eaton, Paul James I hardly remember it but could have been. So I, I think I had a sort of experience about then, still as a teenager. But going on a few years, then I started to see it cropping up and I was discovering folk music and early music. So and I had a few instruments and would play around with. Hurdy-gurdy-wise, I remember seeing, getting to medieval music, of Stevie Wishart playing with a band called Symphony, her band. Mm. Sometimes it was just just her, I think. Sometimes it was, when, when I saw them, it was Vivian Ennis, the singer. But sometimes there was a whole band of medieval musicians. So I saw them quite a lot. I was quite inspired by that. So then I thought, 
it's not just a curious thing I quite like it's it's also good for medieval music which I was getting into and I was then doing some busking so with, with a friend and <clears throat> with Anne-Marie a lot of the time Anne-Marie Summers who I went on to do years of medieval music with so it would be not just my own fun it would be a, a useful thing mm-hmm. I could and say so you- I also saw I saw the occasional random busker and there's one or two people I've met since in recent years and thought, that was you. I saw you in 1990 oh, or something. So it's okay. quite interesting. That's nice. Yeah. So what were process. you just, what were you doing? So you, you got into medieval music and what kind of music were you in just before you began to discover medieval music? I, mm, I guess I would, I would go to, in Birmingham then, I go to occasional classical things. But I would go to lots of sort of noisy bands, I suppose. Ah, oh. <laughs> music from in my early days, music was a sort of general thing that was all around, but in a sense not that important. So, <clears throat> setting out on my own, I didn't take any instruments or even a record player or cassette. I didn't take anything at all. It didn't last long because I realised that was the the most important thing and a, a solace in a cruel world, you could say, to have your music around you like colour and art is <clears throat> creating your own space so music was important but bands that made it seem important was for instance Joy Division hearing certain tracks and mm. thinking yeah that's good it's suddenly a very important thing so mm-hmm. I ended my study of maths and computers and stuff thinking what I don't want to do is a normal job where I'm told to cut my hair and dress a certain way and get up early <laughs> in the morning and live to someone else's beat. Yeah. So then I didn't really know there was any prospect in music, but that's actually what I wanted to do. I also did paintings, but as it takes me um, a long time to do a small painting of a subject that most people don't like, <laughs> that's never going to get me anywhere. <laughs> so music, in fact, music was still a, quite a solo thing, but once I realised that there's an immediate response, it's not just a, a vehicle for creativity expression. You go out there playing to people, and you suddenly you've got loads of friends, and it takes you places. So that immediacy was quite attractive. Right, and um, so I became aware of you just recently. Um, and that was really thanks to, to Sergio kind of point, pointing me in your direction. Uh, but you've had quite an extensive career musically. Um, so if you, if you want to mind, you know, once you, once you began busking and from that point forward, um, how, did, how did your career develop? Uh, what, what were the bands that you were involved with or are involved with um, that were important to you? Yeah, can I remember everything? Career is quite a grand term, really, because career sort of implies you've planned it a bit and there's a path set out for you and you make some good money on the way and none of these things... What, 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 about, what about vocation? Would that be better? I've just followed my passions, I think, and done what I'm, well, I have an aptitude for that seems to work. Uh, and somehow I've still survived this far, so that's success. All we have to do is make it to the end and you know success yes <laughs> but i agree <laughs> i was busking with various people i was doing irish stuff and things like that i'm a little bit irish in ancestry but once i met Anne marie summers this would be 1992 I was playing recorder and doing similar she moved into was newcastle upon time we started doing some 
busking together, playing. It was sort of things like play for tunes. So it was going a bit back in time. Um, I could say I discovered early music by accident by tuning into Radio 3 to hear Letters of Lord Byron. <laughs> Suddenly oh, I heard, oh. initially it was Purcell's funeral music. And that's only, only 1695, but that set me back because it was quite good and uh, was on my mind for a long time. So I was propelled backwards. So with this busking, the two of us, I was trying to introduce medieval tunes to it. <clears throat> then it was mainly a sort of rough old folk homemade sitter thing that a friend of a friend made because it was easily portable. Right. I, was, I got a sort of small harp then. I wanted a hurdy-gurdy. We were acquiring things. She played recorders and was looking for other things. Eventually got into bagpipes. You got into bagpipes or she, other people? She played bagpipes. Okay. And that was a, a good combination. I forgot what the first question was, but we <laughs> the development the development of your of your vocation and the people career, you've played yes, with career, career yes yes yeah. so we're we're playing together once we do some medieval music then it wasn't that long we got invited to a few interesting places not just on the street can I play at a party or whatever that's nice meeting people and then somebody says oh can you do some medieval fair you need some costumes so then it's oh, improvised and I quit oh. my shirt and <laughs> things like this Costume got away with that oh. but. <laughs> Then, because once you get a hurdy-gurdy, and we've talked about it, you've talked about it on other shows, there's a hurdy-gurdy community, and it wasn't internet in those days, but it was, you, there was a society that was mm. interesting. But you'd meet other people anyway, one way or the other, it was your badge to meet other hurdy-gurdy players. Uh, so you learned lots of things about what to do. So playing music got out in a bigger way. Somebody says play medieval music, we get some costume, and then before long, we know we discover that world, the sort of costumed historical music world. Start seeing that sort of music. And once we did a bit of that, it wasn't known before we got put in touch with English heritage. Mm -hmm. So that was, um, that's probably 1994 or five. <clears throat> so suddenly it was, we were working in castles in costume all through the summer. Okay. So that's a real job now. You know, we can survive doing music. Never, Ooh. never thought about that. Yeah. Of course, we fill in with other things, recording or our own concerts. We had another band called The Wendigo, which was with Julian Sutton, a Melodian player, mm -hmm. which was inspired by the sort of French dance scene. And we did a couple of CDs with that. So we do other things, but a lot of the work was costumed medieval work. Right. <clears throat> I should say that that sort of stuff doesn't really make you get good you're playing a lot but you can play three or four tunes on the hurdy-gurdy and do the same every time you get away with it right so in a sense the busier we were the less i'd learn anything new <laughs> right <laughs> you know this this used to happen uh, also to me when i well i i, I just uh, make my living uh, on the streets uh, i i used to do it I used to uh, play on the streets and, and bask quite a lot. And it's exactly what you say. Uh, you end up playing like 12 tunes or uh, 15 tunes over and over and over and over. You play a lot. You play six hours a day, but no, you don't get any better. Sure. <laughs> well, how do you get better? That's the question. <laughs> so how did you get, how do you get better? <laughs> At least for me, it's very, very simple question. Just pushing your limits and always, you know, always trying to, to learn a, a new, more difficult pattern, a new, more difficult technique, uh, challenge yourself, uh, get out of your comfort zone. Otherwise, 
Well, you can play 20 years and, and stay at this level. Mm. What do you think, Steve, about this? You can. People definitely do. I've seen people at the same level for a long time. I was thinking I'd like to get better in those days, but just when there's a bit of time and focus, and other people were going for lessons and improving themselves, and I thought, I'm not going to be one of those people that goes to somebody for lessons and doesn't practice. You know, I'll wait till I'm actually focused on, on doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I did go to the old workshop, actually, at festivals and things. So I would occasionally pick up something there. I, I should say the first thing I did, actually, when I first started playing, we're sort of flitting about here, aren't we? 1993, I made this early music shop kit, which people put down. Yeah. <laughs> it's never a good instrument in one sense, but for me, it was all I could afford. And I learned about the making process. In fact, afterwards, it took me months. Afterwards, I thought, I can make some more now and make hurdy-gurdies. But when I thought, actually, how much it took me, and I, I just wanted to play. So I didn't make any more. <laughs> but I did. I decorated oh. it. I added extra notes and things to it. So it's, nice. it's probably the best one of the... Um, oh. <laughs> I've not seen another playing as well as it did in its day. And it was enough to do gigs with and things and, and do some recordings. Um... It always was a little bit clunky as you turn the wheel. It was never as smooth as the Eaton, of course. And it never resonates as well as a good instrument like the San Palma one I've got. But it was enough to, to learn on. And did you, um, uh, you, you were talking about taking lessons and you wanted to wait until you, you were able to kind of sit down and think about it. So did that ever occur? Or did you just develop the way that you've been able to play now just by figuring it out on your own? Well, I started out with this instrument and in a sense, left hand, where you, <clears throat> you pick things up and it's sort of logical, don't get all tangled up for the most part. Getting the trumpet right, first of all, I should have been reading lots of books and things, but actually I just sort of threw it around and made things up, improvised. So it was a bit rough and ready. Then a friend suggested going to probably one of the last workshops, wasn't it? Um, Michael and Doreen Musket, who had this, oh. I think they started the society. They were still doing, and they had done for some years, they'd done workshops weekend, I think it was, three or four days, maybe, in their old mill near Dorchester. And you'd have about five people going there, staying there, getting fed, meeting people, playing for fun, and lessons through the day. A little bit strict at times, really. Yeah. <laughs> that, that sort of taught me I had some bad habits, and actually I should be more rigorous. So that was a good sort of knock on the right path. <laughs> I can see there are certain, in, in terms of learning music, in terms of life in general, there are certain points and cusps that if you knock yourself in the right way, you'll have a good habit. But if you don't, you may develop a bad one for a long time. So that was the right time for me to not do it like that, but start doing this sort of simple pattern, be rigorous. So it wasn't nothing clever, but it was just basic things that I start teaching people now in workshops. So that was a good thing to do. Live with that for a while. I went to the odd workshop, as I said, at festivals. But too often, actually, people are learning tunes. Is it because people want to learn tunes or is it because the teacher thinks they want to learn tunes and teaches a tune? They weren't all specific hurdy-gurdy lessons, workshops. Some of them were. But I find if I'm learning a tune at the speed of the slowest person, then I'm wasting my time. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. 100%. Yes. Mm. But if I came away with one new bit of technique that I found useful, then that was worth it because... Sure, because you, then you can develop it, sure. Yeah, you go away and practice it. So that's all I needed. I went to 
the order workshop and picked up something. Eventually, I thought, now I'm getting better. I could do with a better hurdy-gurdy, maybe. So I went to Chris Eaton because lots, I've seen lots of his instruments and he was around at some of these events. I could talk to him about it. And I thought, it's nice to have a, somebody making it who I can go and see and see how it's going and talk about things rather than somebody in a diff different country with a different language that it just turns up and there it is or something. Right. It's good um, anyway. Chris is good. Well, quick question, because I know we're going to get into kind of looking at your, 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 your Chris Eaton. You, know, you mentioned that you were kind of just going at it in regards to the trompet and these other things. So are, do you remember how far into, after you first started playing the hurdy-gurdy, did you decide that you needed to start taking, say, the trompet and the technique aspect of it seriously? Was it a year in, six months in, two years in, further? Well, when I went to the muskets weekend, I realized I needed to be more rigorous in practicing things. But I, <clears throat> I'm less of a tune player, more of a player of patterns and rhythms. So I quite enjoy, even in those early days, once I was getting into it, just me playing sometimes just a trompet or just simple repeating patterns. Uh, hurdy goat isn't time. Time is a big theme, a theme of the CD. Yeah. Done. <laughs> I mean, there's many a time where I thought it's middle of the day I'll just pick up my hurdy-gurdy I'll just play some rhythms and then I think why is it dark why am I hungry <laughs> what day is it even you know just time has gone and I've just been playing these patterns I know people have talked about like Sam the last time overdoing it and causing injuries so I probably didn't do that every day but it, it, it just can take over from all else can't it but that's so I would enjoy patterns and rhythms from quite an early time this is a little bit like uh, meditation, uh, right, mm -hmm. Ryan? That you that uh, teach meditation, you can talk a little bit about this. Like, why the drone like take us and oh, and the rhythm and the repetitive patterns, and we kind of lose uh, the, the, the 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 time, you know? When we well, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot actually, because uh, Steve uh, brought that up one other time in in one of the uh, lessons I was having with him and. Um, I thought I have a friend who does neuro uh, neurofeedback and he has the machines that can hook you up to brain scans. And I thought what I really love to do is to go visit him and have him hook me up to the brain scans oh. or the brain scanning device and play the hurdy gurdy because, you know, Sergio happens to you, Steve happens to you, happens to me too, where I think I'm just going to play for 15 minutes. And oh. then I'm sitting there and I'm playing like an hour and a half later or more, you know, I could go a little bit further and I just keep going and I just keep going. And so uh, you know, when it comes to meditation and chanting and things, any kind of constant drone or constant tone tends to um, uh, kind of reset the nervous system. And what I've always wondered about is based on where the hurt, all right, we're getting a little nerdy here, but based on where the, the hurdy-gurdy is placed, when you're cranking it, when you get that vibration through here, there's actually a nerve that goes down through your body called the vagus nerve. And when people do deep breathing or when you have vibration here, um, it tends to put someone in uh, the rest and digest mode, the, the kind of calm, uh, mm -hmm. it's not sympathetic, maybe it is, but anyway, it's, it's the calm part of the nervous system. So I think there's a lot to it. And um, yeah, I, it's, I think it's fascinating. And I completely understand that, Steve. <laughs> well, that's interesting, calming. It's calming in a way, but in different instruments have a different effect. Mm -hmm. So if I play the harp, it's quite a sort of soporific thing. It's quite easy to get very relaxed and have to get up and do something. And um, if I play the hurdy-gurdy, it's, it's not that sort of relaxation. It's a lot more energetic. Hmm. Um, I would be aware that 
I used to live up in a, a castle and in the north of England and it would be during the winter very cold I mean I was sort of proud of it <laughs> just got a, a fire to light and that's it but if it was cold play the hurdy-gurdy because that would get me quite sort of not really hot and sweating but it would certainly be an excitable sort of sound that would take some energy whereas playing the harp is, is not going to be a good thing if it's just cold and you're a bit tired <laughs> you know I want an energising instrument so I would think of the hurdy-gurdy as it's keeping on track and getting away from distractions and changing the perception of time but it's it's not calming like a harp right well one final bit about that now that I'm thinking about it um, being interested in different kinds of like therapies and counselling too there's some body centered uh, counselling and therapy where um, you you kind of cross it's called bilateral uh is it bilateral stimulation or something like that but anyway it's when you stimulate one side of the body and stimulate the other side of the body and so when you're doing the hurdy-gurdy i've thought about this you've got the cranking going on which is making one movement and you've got the fingers doing another movement and then you also have to learn to concentrate on as uh you know when i took lessons with sergio the idea of dissociation of trying to get your fingers to play a particular kind of pattern that might seem a little bit rhythmically different in a way than what the buzzing or the trumpet's doing. And so what I think it does, I really think it, it really impacts the nervous system in a way that it's just magical. <laughs> I don't think you're really dissociating what you do in this sort of case. You're just building up bigger patterns and working ah. out how they all fit together. Right. Even if it feels like you're playing a repeated rhythm, and then you're freely doing something in a different rhythm entirely with the left hand. Yeah. I think if you practice doing that, you get used to all sorts of different relationships of how they fit together and you can switch from one to another. I still feel we tend to work with the bigger pattern rather than actually being separate. Mm, I see. In all aspects of life. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Well, uh, one of your instruments that you have from Chris Eaton, um, would you mind sh showing that to us and, and how it works with the, yes. the dual keyboard? Exactly, because uh, for those of you who don't know this, Steve's instrument has an extra uh, row of keys that allows him to play some intervals, some chords, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> So do you see it there? Do I need to sort of... Yeah, we can see it. Maybe you can uh, give us a little bit more gain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's the pose. <laughs> so if my head's in there, it doesn't matter. It isn't in tune. If this is plugged in, but tell me if you hear it okay. Okay. As, as you can see, uh, if anyone hasn't seen this, it's got its own distinctive look. It's not meant to be dusty. <laughs> Um, so, we, yeah, we can't see the dust. No, no, no. It look quite like anyone else's instrument. This is my own sort of design. I didn't do it on the instrument. Inspired by medieval Gothic tracery sort of thing. Mm. I've gone for two heads there. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. One is you. And, um, <laughs> supposedly me, uh, living and dead. This is the medieval idea of memento mori. Got a cowl on that one. So important in those days to me it's sort of it's, it's it's saying live well it's saying make that next cd now you might not get another chance huh. make the most of it yes that is very important to remember in all things 
So lots of features are sort of standard these these days. But the basic string that's a G. I've got get up to an A at the top. So it's two octaves and one note. It's a bit like your your amp going up to eleven or something. These go to eleven. <laughs> and then the octave down. Sounds about in tune. Um, before I put the drones on, I'll show the double keyboard mechanism. Oh, yes. So Chris makes them with a, if you ask for it, separate row there. This is not, this is chromatic, but it's all on one row. This so is more or less like, like the Nico Harpa, right? Looks a bit like it, but you're, you're on the same string only, so you can't, yeah. unlike Nico Harpa. I have this a low G too. I think it came with a high G, but so it's a low one. I tend to play one from a normal keyboard and one from the other the other row. So mm. this goes up to a B. Since then, after this, he made them up to C, and I'm often missing that top note. Perhaps I should go back and have an extra note done. So it's, it's not, it's only an octave and a third on this. And the way I tend to play it, I don't really use the lower few because I'm playing on the other row. So I'm using about an octave of notes. I've still only got four fingers, so it's not like I can attach together. So it's not like I can play complex contrapuntal music or anything. But to me, it's playing different intervals and patterns, anything from a second up to a six normally, and just changing them, either to accompany another tune, preferably played on bagpipes or something, or just to give, if I was doing a solo thing, I could just play some sort of chordal patterns as a, as a bit of a foil and then go back into the melody. But I often just play, play patterns and trumpet patterns of these these chords which becomes the basis for a bigger piece that make up a tune to fit in and other parts happen so it's good for that sort of creativity but with that with that that how that's set up if you weren't playing that bottom row of keys which is the uh i guess the one that makes the chord would would it just sound like the drone or is it just it's a load it's an open g. g yeah okay Actually, i thought i'd be letting go and playing and then putting it on again but the open string's a bit louder than most of the notes, so that doesn't work quite so well. I tend to play it, and then I've got this switch here to just take it off if I don't need it. Ah. I'll just play around a bit with drones and see how it comes out.
and and this was improvised, right? No, that's sort of <laughs> ah, something okay. I first made up, and I've used I've used those sort of chords as a basis of a piece. So nice. originally, I was playing around and uh, a piece called the, the Wendigo, which I did a long time ago. Ah. It was the beginning of, of chords. Actually, was it before I even had this hurdy-gurdy? It was a playing around with different parts, and me and a friend, and then I thought I translated it to this and developed it from there. So that that sort of cycle is part of a tune. Mm. Wow. Yeah, well, I could listen to that. <laughs> it, it almost put me in a trance there, just sitting here. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I was like, okay, Steve, play more, please. <laughs> yeah, and and it, it's very interesting. It sounded like, like an organ, uh -huh. yeah. something like that, like a church organ with those uh, dissonant uh, intervals. It was very, very nice. I love it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you never answered the question about uh, when did you start taking the trompet seriously? Well, um, I soon, as I said, thought I should try to get it right. So I would practice certain yeah. things and I knew sort of what to do. Went to a few workshops, learned some more things. Eventually, I went to Nigel Eaton for a lesson. Okay. So on oh, on top of lesson, though I seem to remember I ended up, we did something and he tried to get me playing some uh, Valentine Clastra. And, and then it was, I gave him a lesson on a mandolin or something, I seem to think. <laughs> We started, I learned something from him, and that, that was it, really. I, I knew what to do. Well, my, my only, the only reason I'm asking is because, you know, I'm, 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 for people out there who are just getting started, or, uh, you know, at, at what point in time should they start really feeling like, okay, the trumpet, I should be halfway decent at it by this point in time. <laughs> so we're just trying to use you as a gauge. <laughs> yeah, I did some recordings that I hadn't been playing that long, and they sort of sound all right. Okay. So from the beginning? Yeah, I think you should take it seriously early because it's the unique thing that the hurdy-gurdy has. So you want to get it right. If, if you get it wrong, it lets you down. Mm -hmm. If you've got a trumpet on the instrument, which is most instruments, then surely that's a lot of the fun, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Hurdy-gurdy's want to be good at it. Mm -hmm. It helps to enjoy patterns and rhythms. If you're only a tune player and you're bored with playing patterns with rhythms, then there's only so far you'll go. Right. Well, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I started uh, with Sergio and then taking lessons with you that like, I started being able to get the muscle memory enough to where I could even consider trying to do some of these patterns. And, and that was my, my stumbling point um, was that I didn't, I, I didn't have anything like that in my mind. You know, I played mandolin and guitar for years, so I knew how to strum and how to do rhythms there, but I didn't have... I didn't have the muscle memory to even kind of get a nice sharp buzz, even on the one or the two. And so it was for me, just focusing on the one and then and the two, and then trying to get the threes in there and then very slowly doing the fours and moving them up to speed. But for me, it was more muscle memory than it was thinking of it in patterns. But now, now I'm still not that good at it, but now um, I found that when I'm playing tunes, I can think about it in such a way to add patterns to make it more interesting but it took it took getting the muscle memory first. So um, I guess for for Steve and Sergio, I'm kind of curious. Um, uh, was the muscle memory more more natural to you? Or does it make sense what I'm trying to say here about just kind of knowing what to do with the hand? I was trying to play in a sort of intuitive way and not really, not in a mathematical divide the wheel up, just sort of go where it felt right. Right. 
and then I was sort of put right and I've realized once you repeat patterns you do so many buzzes per turn hit the same places that's a better way to, to go so I, I did that once you do that you are linking into your muscles it's the same action each time right yeah I think that's I mean I think that's an important thing to consider what you just said because that was also how I I thought I don't need to know how to do trumpets I can just I know how I know rhythm I can just make the rhythms but you know you can't just you know I'm speeding up and slowing down trying to hit the certain things when we start kind of breaking it down into you know one two three and four and then where you hit those different things that that made all the difference yeah mm. <laughs> you probably develop more fast twitch muscle just by doing it you know there are some things there are some things that you first do and you think that's physically impossible but once you've it's partly posture learning how to hold something and learning techniques your body adapting to it and then years later you think i never thought i'd get that far right it's worth being inspired too it's worth seeing other players and yeah. once i got my first hurdy-gurdy i started mm -hmm. seeing other players even more than the few i had seen mm -hmm. getting into the world of hurdy-gurdies and then you see people that some people sound good you think oh i like that some people as well can look good you can look at them and think they've got a fluent action i like the way they're sort of playing it people don't play exactly the same as someone else but mm -hmm. there are some bad habits that don't look good Right. sometimes get by some people it just looks smooth and you think yes I'm, something I like about the way it's they sure. mm -hmm. and now I am I am very curious now that you were talking about inspiration uh, and we I tend to to ask this question to everybody that comes here to the podcast uh, who are uh, the players that inspired you who who are your like your top three players or top five if three is very difficult <laughs> <laughs> Inspired? Do you mean inspired as in the old days of getting into hurdy gurdy? As I as I said, I I, said, I, I, I could mean uh, that, or I could mean Whatever. today. I don't know. <clears throat> hmm. um, well, I'll say, in those days, Stevie Wishart playing medieval music was yes. inspiration. I also saw Brendan Perry of the band Dead Can Dance. Oh, yeah. He didn't play trumpet or anything, but but it would be used in songs and things like that they did one or two medieval pieces too so that was quite nice to hear um for me the hurdy-gurdy music in general is more more about the combination of parts of sounds the interaction so a single good player we want to be good of course we should practice but one player playing well say a concert do two or three pieces it's very hard not to sound repetitive it's nice to hear but the height of music is mixing different sounds and different things, especially with some human voice in there. So as it's going back to Dead Can Dance, when they had Hurdy Gurdy, there'd be other instruments, sometimes there's a singer too, and those combinations were, were very good. In a similar way, coming to the more modern era, modern era, I mean, that's sort of modern, isn't it? But <laughs> the use of Hurdy Gurdy players now that are, are playing and the sort of it's not just about who's a good player it's about the material they choose to to play and how it's arranged and what things happen so in that sense i should go to which i told you earlier um a very good gig and i went to 2007 lambda fock this is mm. Efren lopez, Efren lopez playing, yes. playing so this is a band of there it was nine people with sometimes two hurdy-gurdies it's not just hurdy-gurdy, it's not about the hurdy-gurdy play, it's about the whole use of that in the wider context, which then I found very exciting and 
it's the sort of thing I like to do myself. It's not about trying to do a, a clever hurdy-gurdy piece. It's about fitting lots of parts together. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be clever parts, but they don't have to be, well, they should be well thought out. All different parts should be aware of each other, and they're doing a sort of dance, and this brings into patterns and all sorts of nature. Um, but that's what it's about. Music is the bigger whole. So, so Efren is, is a favorite player, I think. Right. Awesome. It's it's so fun because I know you are one of a friend's top players, favorite players. So this is one of one like this is a magical moment for me. When, when you know, you know, Steve says, Oh, I really like how a friend plays and a friend says, Oh man, really I love when, when I heard Steve playing my my composition, you know, it's it's crazy. And we even got to play together earlier in, in the year yeah. in, in Horsey Manor in England. Lovely. So maybe it's a good time to to hear uh, the tune that uh, Steve chosen, Pandero. Yes. By Lambda Folk. Excellent. Let's have a go, and we'll we'll be right back with uh, Steve Tyler and Sergio Gonzalez on the Hurdy Gurdy Podcast. Hurdy Gurdy Cafe Podcast. <laughs> All right. Here we go.
Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll come back from Pandero. Uh, Land of the okay, universe. There are duplicates and near duplicates of everything, aren't there? There's even another bloke called Steve Tyler. Would you believe it? <laughs> I would believe it. I think he's in a band, isn't it? It's like a rock and roll band. Yeah, another musician called Steve Tyler, rock and roll band. Yeah. I thought I should have a band with him in it, and probably James <laughs> Tyler, the lutenist. <laughs> I think he played with Dave Monroe. My middle name is James. I should call the band Steve Tyler and the False Relations. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> So <laughs> we're back uh, from listening to Pandero from Lam de Folk, uh, Efren Lopez. And that's a beautiful, wonderful tune. And it incorporates what you were talking about earlier, Steve, about uh, sort of the, the ensemble effect and, and, and voice with it. And I don't speak whatever language they were singing, but it's does any... Catalan. Do you know what they're talking about in this, this uh, chat? Sure. Uh, sure, sure. He's uh, speaking Catalan. And, uh, well, uh, Catalan or uh, Valencian, which is uh, kind of similar. And uh, I need to remember a little bit uh, what they are talking about, but it's, it's all about um, someone who is invited uh, to play um, the pandero, which is the, the frame drum, in a, in a party, and they talk about it. <laughs> Something okay. like this. It's like, uh, yeah. Okay. So, Something like that, yeah. So, so it's about the drum. It's about the drum and, and playing it on the party and what happens when someone plays the drum and, uh, yeah. Great. Well, um, so Steve, you, you picked that track and, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how F Friends is one of your, one of the players that really, really inspires you. Um, when it comes to inspiration, you know, you, with that uh, CD, um, The Enduring, the ephemeral, is it the enduring? And the, I keep getting mixed up. The enduring and the ephemeral, is that it? That's right. That's right. That's it. But again, enduring and the ephemeral, it's a wonderful, that should be part two. But um, what are you, are you working on anything in particular now? Or what's your, where are you, where are you currently with your, yeah, your pretty great adventure? Something, even if it's just in my head. But these days, with, <laughs> with the lockdown and the whatever state we have now, certainly we have no gigs till April and we haven't played since around then too so it's going to be a whole year with with no proper gigs mm -hmm. a few things online a few hurdy-gurdy pupils but that is actually an opportunity to work more on music in, in a way that i couldn't always do so there's different strands to it what i have been working on is medieval stuff with a a, a version of our band woodworth this is me and my wife katie marchant who plays bagpipes and recorders and sean we we were to have played at a festival with a lineup of five of us, and that will be deferred to next year. This is medieval music in the Dales, so a medieval music festival. And there aren't many of those around dedicated to medieval music in a castle up in the north of England. Mm. So it didn't happen, but they had a an online version. Ooh. So I thought, there's a chance. I don't really want to try to play live, partly because I don't think the quality would be good. And our band is spread out. With, uh, we have two Portuguese members, for instance, so the chance of us getting together when we haven't got any gigs is uh, zero. But the thing to do is um, we're recording towards a CD, which we were going to rush to get done by this festival, but with that taken away, we just thought, let's work on tracks and take our time over it. So this is me recording my parts, deciding how things should go, sending them out to other people, emailing 
getting them to send their parts back and me perhaps editing a little and deciding to shift arrangement and getting other people's in and doing it like that slowly right. which is better really I think we'll get a better result than just going to a studio saying we've practiced for a few days whatever we do is it which has been sometimes the case in the past mm-hmm. I like a slower approach to get it right um, because so we've done some traction we're working on on these pieces and I think they'll be better than any of the other medieval music I've done in the past mm-hmm. uh, because they wanted some videos and now with the technology we have it's one of the joys of the modern age um, I'm using the Reaper program and it's very easy to work with video too so that's very exciting as I have lots of visual ideas as well as musical ideas mm-hmm. so we've done I think all together we did five videos which I'm tweaking and putting up but they were shown at the Medieval Music in the Dales Festival so mm-hmm. they may by now be up on their, their own site <laughs> so working on videos and music is what I've been doing and we'll keep on to do a whole CD there at the same time I'm doing little bits of other other things that are slower process there's a, a folk musician, melodeon player, Frank Lee, in the north of England that I recorded last perhaps January, so it's a long time ago, and I meant to edit the various takes and add myself to some of them, Ooh, nice. but it's a slow process. So that's a sort of folk type of CD that we'll get mm-hmm. done at some point. So these are more medieval, uh, more of like the medieval that's, that's folk. Medieval. So we're, we're working, we're halfway through a medieval CD, 14th century Italian music. Right. We have, we are, there's this folk one waiting to go, melodian tunes. There's always more of my own multi-track ideas, which I'm playing around with, probably using right. guitar. But from my CD that you've talked of, I'd like to do videos to a few of those. Mm-hmm. And the, the tracks took a long time to work because there's lots of things going on. Right. And if you think you may have... 10 tracks of instruments some of them you've got two mics some of them you've got four takes or, or something it's a lot of stuff to listen through especially when that's the editing process once I've got things I might chop it around and take bits out and get things redone so it's a it's a slow process mm-hmm. um, but so trying to fit videos to it as well will take even longer but I could put up there's one which I've got well on the way I put up on YouTube and Facebook a, a sample an excerpt of where I'm at marking the the 10th anniversary of the death of our viol player that used to play with us. Mm. So this is Mike Edwards, who played cello and bass viol. He played for a number of bands, including our medieval band, which we had then, Daughters of Elvin, one of the few bands we've skipped from talking about the past and suddenly we're, we're there. <laughs> Daughters of Elvin, who played with us. We had a... We had a concert in Totnes where he lives and the day before, bad news, he was struck by a bale of hay, would you believe it? What? A, a big round bale of hay that rolled from a farmer's tractor or something down a steep Devon hill. Oh, he was driving yeah. his van. And the impact was oh. the end of him. Wow. So at the gig, we still could hardly believe it. We thought if he doesn't turn up at the gig, we feel he wants to be there. If he doesn't turn up, we'll know he really is dead. And we have to tell, tell yeah. him that you've come to see him, which is very sad. Wow. Um, so 10 years on, 3rd of September, mm-hmm. I put up an excerpt of this track 
as a tribute because I've used his playing on this track. It's an interesting track. Oh, okay. It's um, inspired by the sea. So I'm playing, initially it was reed organ. Um, I'm, even then I'm playing different parts. Reed organ with hurdy-gurdies coming in. And I'm playing no notes on the hurdy-gurdy and then I'm sort of recording the clacking of the keys and different sounds it makes to add effects. Mm -hmm. Built that up, that up. It then has Katie Marchant, Katie, my wife, singing. She doesn't sing much, but she has an amazing voice. So this is textless, ethereal, very high sort of singing. And, and that was done. There's different ways to approach music and create it, but that's done with me sketching out a few suggestions and then her trying out what comes to her. She's less of a planner in that way, but she'll be inspired and just go off and try all these things. Right. And there's me taking the ones I like the best and putting them together and then saying, look, here's the new piece. So it's that backwards and forwards working. Mm -hmm. So we arrived at that and I was very pleased with it. We both thought that Mike would have loved to have played on it. He was always up for new adventure, mm -hmm. playing with different sounds. Mm -hmm. and added to that, this is about the sea and just after he died, Katie had dreamt of him as if he's a whale singing in the sea. Mm -hmm. Free, and he's seeing, he's coming, and then he's going, disappearing. Mm -hmm. A sort of merciful release, perhaps. It was a peaceful image. That's how she felt. Mm -hmm. So it fitted so perfectly. We thought, we wish we could, could ask him, but he's not here. And I thought, well, perhaps I can ask him if I search back through the archives and see if there's something that he played unaccompanied. So right. I found this section which is just him improvising solo. And I thought, well, that's where Katie finishes singing. That's where we want him in. Let's just put him in there. Mm -hmm. right. And I think I had to change a couple of notes where the mode was different. Other than that, it sounds like he's playing to it. It fits perfectly. Because yeah. um, he, was, he was well known, and he was actually one of the original members of Electric Light Orchestra back in the 1970s. Oh, wow. So, mm. so you've got various different websites. you even got farming websites broadcasting the news because it's a farming issue too right when i first heard you were you recording the enduring and the ephemeral um i was i was pretty taken aback by it just because it wasn't what i was expecting <laughs> <laughs> uh you know I, i've been told to, to listen to your work and um uh, just the way it's put together, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you studied mathematics and I, I think computers and, and my first impression of it, it was as if, uh, it was as if, if Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush played Hurdy Gurdy and this was the album he made <laughs> because he was in the, he was, in, he had a very fantastic mind and he was very methodical and, and, uh, kind of formulaic, well, formulaic is not even the right word, just, the, the patterns being in different kinds of time signatures, but they fit together in such a way that you really didn't know they were in different time signatures until you really thought about it. So when you approached this, was this just what popped out of your mind? Is this the, what, the music that you would play if it was just you left to your own devices? Yes, it's all the soundtrack to life, soundtrack in my head, really, ideas, some of which go back decades, really, some, some little riff that I've done a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I think now that's, let's take that and make something more of it. Mm, which way do I go? <laughs> it's interesting to me, compositional process, because some people write tunes, they're tune players. 
in fact, talking of a double keyboard, there are lots of tune, there are various players with that sort of instrument, but they're tune players and they don't really use a double keyboard. So, mm, yeah, my way of thinking is not really tuned, it's different parts coming in. So, I don't think I ever on this have a tune which I want to embellish, it comes from different ways. Some of them come from some chordal pattern, some of the organ. I don't really play keyboard keyboards but I've got some old reed organs and things and I spent many hours just playing around inventing patterns that I like. <clears throat> it's all about patterns really isn't it? Patterns and pattern recognition. So sometimes I'm starting with perhaps I've got some really good bass notes and some simple sparse chords and a pattern that works and that's the basis of the piece. I've sort of sketched it out. <laughs> it goes from one to another. I might imagine something else comes in there, something goes out there. It's a bit like paint, doing a painting and thinking, yeah, if I now squint my eyes and get back, I know it will be good if I work on the detail. So then there comes a point where more work is needed and it's actually, what exactly are the lines connecting the points? If I want two or three part music, I've got a few key points that are really good and a few changes. The rest is vague mm -hmm. in that sense. And this links into the mathematical thought of music. Mm -hmm. it's, it's perhaps like some interpretations of the quantum world till you look at it, it's nothing particular, it's probability. There's a, there are certain fixed points and there's a whole fuzzy areas of probability. And if you look closely enough, if I look closely enough, I'll start saying, that's got to do that, let's fix it. <laughs> so there's that compositional process, different sounds coming in. So, so was it just seeing, looking, kind of like looking deeper and more sharply or did you approach it from any kind of uh, like conceptual framework where because when I listened to the to the recording I wanted to listen to it from the beginning to the end like you know how, how records used to be where you would just yeah. sit down and you listen to the whole thing it wasn't just one good song here one good song there did you approach it from that or did you just get lucky and that's what happened the order is took a lot of jiggling around and thought just like an individual piece does but each individual piece, individual piece is not is not planned in that sense mm -hmm. when you talk about mathematics and method method being very rigorous and i could go on to talk about mathematics and music isn't yes i'm not this music isn't calculated it's not algorithmic it's not that sort of mathematical music mm -hmm. And when I say, when I talk about mathematics, and I do think it is mathematical, it's more having a feel for proportion and patterns, spotting <clears throat> patterns and manipulating them mentally. So each one of these is done just on its own as what seems to be. There was no theme to the whole recording, <clears throat> but actually having done them all, there's a time theme going on. All the yeah. Time. <clears throat> uh, hence the, the title, it's, it's really about the juxtaposition of different chronological perspectives you could say it's how I'm often in a certain time and place and I think this for me this is quite a long time I was here a decade ago or whatever but this tree this rock it's nothing to them this fly it's many lifetimes or whatever it's even different people meeting mm -hmm. it's just um, pondering that sort of thing really <laughs> so there's a time theme going on but that's just because it all comes from the same, it comes from my mind and the, the imagination. And fitting them together was thought to make it flow, but it wasn't pre-planned. Okay, well, we're coming close to the end of our time today. Um, Sergio, do you have any final questions for Steve that you'd like to 
to get his uh, opinion on? I don't know. I'm mesmerized yeah. uh, listening to what's happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have any messages for the hurdy gurdy world, Steve? <laughs> the hurdy gurdy world. I, I don't really feel connected to any world. It's nice to have all to meet people through the hurdy gurdy and play early music and whatever. And and there's the hurdy gurdy community, isn't there? But in yeah. another sense, I'm, I'm not. The music is not trying to fit in anywhere uh, i don't know where it does fit in in fact the stuff i do freely like this uh -huh. so yeah be useful to see if where it takes me if it fits in with anyone else's ideas or leads on to further collaborations mm -hmm. i could talk more about mathematics and music um perhaps i was talking to rory you know rory yeah rory scammel yeah, he, he yeah. brought up an idea which I've had already, which is the sculpting of white noise, how white noise contains everything. All tunes are in there. You right. take away bits. It's like sculpt, sculpting, isn't it? And create something. Um, I might well do things like that. I often think of music like, like that. Everything's going on. Like I said, all the probabilities, they're all there. It's deciding which ones you don't want and finding a path through mm -hmm. that makes harmonious aesthetic sense and seems to be saying something seems to have a purpose mm -hmm. so it's randomness isn't it it's incorporating randomness sometimes from patterns from white noise spotting patterns or patterns that aren't really there i'm quite interested in seeing faces and shapes and things that where they're not supposed to be there messages where they're not knowing that they're just sort of random artifacts but running with that for art's sake what could that be taken right what do with that you know well, it, it kind of goes to show that you, you must be a, a true poet. Be, be, <laughs> not with be, words, no. Well, maybe not with words, but um, uh, I've studied uh, 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 Vedic astrology, which is the astrology from India. And in one of the texts, uh, it discusses the planet Venus. And we often think of Venus as the planet that deals with music and the arts and these sorts of things and poetry and um, also astrology. But it says um, Venus Venus makes one either a poet or an astrologer because they're able to find meaning where there is none. <laughs> <laughs> so it always, it always stuck out to me. But um, I mean, I think that's what we're doing with music, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're seeing these, these issues in life and we're, we're, we're bringing them into some kind of uh, some, something that we can appreciate aesthetically or something that we can, uh, enjoy. And even I was recently listening to a, a discussion on how human perception is such that we think that we are, we think that we're making choices. So I'm reaching forward and I think that I made the choice to reach forward, but they've again done these kinds of uh, brain scans that the body is actually reaching forward before the brain has even acknowledged that it's made the choice to reach forward. <laughs> Um, yes, I've, I've read about those experiments and people debate free will in, in all this. I think free will is then not defined very well. Right. And what they're saying doesn't go against free will. See, if I, if I struggle to decide something, I'm weighing up various things, I could do this, could do that. I go put some mental effort in and I make a choice. It doesn't matter if somebody else could predict exactly what I was doing. I've made that effort. That's free will. <laughs> Free will doesn't mean you can do anything you want because we are all constrained by many ways. I'm free to jump as high in the air as I want, but I'm never going to get more than a few feet. Right. Is that right. free? It is free because 
I can try, you know, yeah. put in the effort and get somewhere. Well, it, it also kind of brings in the idea that they're trying to gauge it from the mind and the body. And I mean, I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts on this. It seems to me that maybe the mind, the body, the whole consciousness is, is more than just the mind and the body that you can't quite measure it. So it doesn't really matter if, if, if a brain scan says that you haven't made the decision yet, but you're reaching. It's that the whole mind is... I would well, say that's all a part of me. The bit that reaches is part of my mind just as much. Right. <laughs> well, we went somewhere I wasn't planning on going today. <laughs> I have to start another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> well... I think we'll go ahead and conclude there uh, because people need some time to digest what we've just gone over. But um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Steve, for being here today. And thank you, Sergio, once again, for being here with us. And um, we're going to go out listening to Tethys from The Enduring and the Ephemeral. And is there anything you'd like to say about this track uh, just ahead of time? Because it's got Katie singing in it as well, right? Yeah, I probably said it already about Katie, about the process, about yeah. Mike, even though this is the whole track it's still sort of there as a tribute isn't it right i don't know if there's more to say got any questions on it i listened to the whole thing multiple times and i just think it's a it's like i said the whole album itself takes me on a journey which is what i like about music when i when i start at the beginning and i go to the end by the time i'm done you know it's 30 40 50 minutes later i feel like i've gone somewhere so this is just a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful side trip on the the, the whole adventure of, of the enduring and the ephemeral. So I appreciate it. <laughs> nice. It's not, there's no rhythm to this. It's very sort of floaty and it feels like I'm just messing around on the hurdy-gurdies and putting random notes, which initially I was to sketch it, but actually now everything is exactly in place where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It seems to have a meaning. Maybe every little passing note. Hopefully life is like that too. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> all right well it was wonderful to have you uh and so thank you so much for being here and uh we'll do it again sometime it was Great. fun yeah take care sergio take care steve awesome see, see you, you.